Good morning. Please turn your Bibles to John chapter 11. Being the second service, you have the benefit of me not coming up here and snotting and crying through the first half of the sermon like I did in first service when Brenda was here. I suppose the benefit, one of the benefits of having a couple services. As been explained, uh, two weeks ago we lost our dear brother Don Jones and then this past week we lost our beloved friend Bruce Dumont. And so for the second time in two weeks we are as a church together, making our way to the house of mourning. And so instead of continuing our study through Matthew, your pastors thought it would better serve you, better serve all of us, if we directed our attention to a passage that helps us process pain, that helps us process our questions in suffering, that helps us process our grief, and helps us think about how to mourn with those who mourn. We need this kind of help. We need this kind of help because in our culture, we don't often know what to do with death. Uh, We live our entire lives doing all that we can to avoid making eye contact with death. We live our entire lives like that, and then in moments like this one, when we are forced to face it, we realize we don't know what to do with it. We don't know how to think about death. We don't know how to think about our unanswered questions, our unanswered prayers for healing. We don't know how to care for families like the Jones or how to comfort bereaved Brenda. We want to be helpful. Many of us just don't know how to come along some, someone, alongside someone who is grieving the death of a loved one, all the more if we do not know them. What are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to think? What are we supposed to say? Romans twelve fifteen. God instructs us to mourn with those who mourn, so this is what love does. It weeps with those who weep. We're called to grieve together, but... Many of us need to be taught and trained on how to do this. And in this regard, there is no other passage I'd rather have us turn to today than John chapter 11. Because here, our Savior has much to teach us. He has much to teach us about death. He has much to teach us about the mystery of his providence. He has much to teach us about his own heart. And here we see him mourning with those who are mourning. So in our grief today, let us direct our attention to Jesus and the account of the death of his beloved friend. John chapter 11, we'll read verses one through 46. This is the word of God. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. <clears throat> it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified 
through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Laz- and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed 2 days longer in the place where he was. Then after this he said to the disciples, "Let us go to Judea again." The disciples said to him, "Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again?" Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man 
from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out. His hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. There are at least four things here that I want us to consider today as we look at this account of Jesus grieving. Four things, and the first is the delay of Jesus. The delay of Jesus in verses 1 through 16. Initially, we are informed that Lazarus is ill. And so his dear sisters, Martha and Mary, send word to Jesus. They send word to Jesus because they know he has the power to heal. But they also send word to Jesus because they know he loves them. Verse three, the sisters sent him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And again, in verse five, we read, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. You see, friends, in Jesus, both sovereign power and unfailing love meet. He is both mighty to save and lowly in heart, and yet his ways are not our ways. His will is still a mystery to us. Jesus does not always exercise his power in his love as we would expect him to. Uh, he both gives and takes away. And so look again with me at verses five and six and just wrestle with me over the mysterious will of our Lord. It says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus so When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was? That is a perplexing response. Jesus was over 100 miles away from Lazarus. His friend whom he loves is ill. The man is dying, but instead of departing right away, Jesus waits two days. He does not come. He does not answer the call for help. Jesus delays. And some of the greatest trials we face in life, some of the greatest challenges to our faith come in moments just like this one, when Jesus delays. Based on his character, based on his promises, we expect Jesus to act in certain ways. We expect him to come to our aid. We expect him to respond to our cry. But then sometimes, he seemingly does not. And it leaves us waiting, and it leaves us confused, and it leaves us disappointed. 
Sometimes we experience divine delay to our prayers. We come to Jesus, we cry out, Lord, please do this. Lord, please help this way. But he doesn't, at least in the way that we are asking. He delays. Sometimes we experience divine delay in providing for us, in providing for us a spouse, in providing for us a child of our own, in providing for us a job that we enjoy. Sometimes we experience divine delay in providing us with guidance. There are various paths laid out before us, different roads we could go down, so we cry out for wisdom, and yet nothing becomes clearer to us. The situation goes on. We need to make a decision. We can't put off deciding indefinitely. We need to act, and yet Jesus seems to delay in giving us the guidance we ask for. Sometimes we experience divine delay in frustrated desires. We want more unbelievers to be saved. We want a promotion at work. We want our kids to not depart from the way that they should go, but Jesus delays. Sometimes we experience divine delay in removing trials from us. Now we think about Joseph in Genesis and about his suffering just went on and on and on. He was hated by his brothers. He's thrown into a pit. He's sold into slavery. Can it get any worse? It does get worse. He's falsely accused. He's wrongly imprisoned. He's forgotten and left there to die. Some of you have gone through seasons like this one. Some of you are in seasons like this one where the trial just seems strung out and you're crying out, Lord, when will this end? And yet God seems to delay deliverance. Sometimes we experience divine delay in healing. Just like Mary and Martha in this passage and just like we have as we cried out for healing for Don and for Bruce. And yet, Jesus delayed. So we know how Martha and Mary felt. Numb, confused, scared, disheartened. We know what it is to be in a position like they were in, where we cannot see any possible good that could come out of this. We know what it's like to expect Jesus to come, to show up, to act on our behalf, only to have those expectations disappointed. So why does Jesus delay? Why does he tarry? Well, this passage speaks into that question. This passage speaks into Jesus' motives for delaying. This passage assures us that behind every divine delay is a divine purpose. 
Even when we cannot immediately perceive them, they are there, they are at work. When it appears Jesus is delaying and not responding, when it appears he is withholding and not providing, there are reasons, there are divine purposes at work. And one such purpose, the ultimate purpose really, is the one that is discussed most plainly here, and that is the purpose of the display of God's glory. We see this in verse four. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Here we are reminded of a startling fact, and it's one that we need to be reminded of in the midst of suffering, because we can lose sight of it. Here we see that in this story, Lazarus is not the main character, but Jesus is. And in our story, we are not actually the main characters. Jesus is. Jesus is the main character, and in this story, he deliberately postpones going to Bethany so they and so that we might behold the glory of God. Jesus is about to do something for them that they did not anticipate. Jesus is about to do something for them that would astound everyone, something that would display the glory of God. In this story, it's his power in raising Lazarus from the dead. In our own life, it may be some other display of of God's perfection that he intends to showcase. It could be his power, it might be his wisdom, maybe it's his sufficiency or his provision or his grace, but we can rest assured one reason Jesus delays is because he intends to display the glory of God through it. Commenting on this passage, James Montgomery Boyce notes, the comfort in our prayers is not in the fact that Jesus is always answering them as we wish, for he does not. It is that he who made us and controls all circumstances knows best and is well able to direct even sickness and death to his glory. This is where faith is tested. Do we believe, do you believe that God can direct your circumstances, your suffering, and even sickness and death to his own glory? Do you believe it? Believe it. Believe it not only because of what Jesus does in Lazarus' life in just a few minutes, but believe it even more than that because he has done it in his own son. Believe it because of what God has done on the cross. The gospel assures us that God is able to direct even suffering and death to his own glory. And if he can direct his own son's death for the sins of the world to his own glory, then friend, he can direct Bruce's death and he can direct Don's death and he can direct your sickness and he can direct your suffering to his own glory too. He can do it and he is about the business of doing it. An illustration I like to think of is that in this world, it's like we only see the underside of the tapestry that Jesus is weaving. 
What if we could see the other side of this glorious tapestry, but right now we can't. We only see the underside, and from our vantage point, it looks confusing, it looks messy, and we cannot see what the pattern is that he's weaving. All we see is dangling threads, seemingly random knots, and what looks like collar with no order. But friends, one day, Jesus will bring us up to see from the top what this tapestry looks like. One day, he'll show us how everything in this world good and bad, sickness and health, life and death, are all woven together to display the glory of God. And since God is immeasurably greater than any of his gifts, and even the sum total of all his gifts, then how rich and blessed we are to one day share in his glory. Every triumph, every trial will be and is being knit together to make a masterpiece displaying the soul satisfying glory of God. So friends, remain steadfast when Jesus delays. Strengthen your faith knowing that he does so for the sake of his glory and yet do not misinterpret that. To think, well, God is just some kind of cold God that just orchestrates everything to his glory and doesn't really care about us. We're just pawns on the chessboard of life. No, Jesus goes out of his way to make sure to emphasize that his delay is not a withdrawal of his love. Jesus is careful here to dispel for us the lie that he does not care, he does not love us because he delays. His delaying does not mean that he is angry with you or irritated with you. In fact, his delaying actually means he loves you. It means he loves you enough to withhold what you want in order to give you what you need. We see this here in this puzzling reaction of Jesus in verses five and six, which we read a minute ago, but let's look at it again. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so, and that is the correct translation here, it's so, or therefore, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Some translators just cannot make sense of this so, and so they translate it as yet. He loved them and yet he stayed. But the word is not yet, the word is so. The word is therefore, and any other translation misses the revelation of this passage. The revelation that Jesus loves Martha and Mary and Lazarus enough to withhold what they want in order to give them what they need. Commenting on this passage, John Calvin explains, as Christ is the only mirror of the grace of God, we are taught by this delay on his part that we ought not to judge the love of God from the condition which we see before our eyes. When we have prayed to him, he often delays his assistance, either that he may increase still more our ardor in prayer, or that he may exercise our patience and at the same time accustom us to obedience. Let believers then implore assistance to God, but let them also learn to suspend their desires if he does not stretch out his hand for their assistance as soon as they may think that necessity requires, for whatever may be his delay, he never sleeps and never forgets his people. Friend, God has not stretched, if God has not stretched out his hand for your assistance as quickly as you think, 
necessity requires. Whatever the delay, it is not because he sleeps. It is not because he slumbers. It is not because he does not care. It is because he loves you, cares enough to give you not what you want, but what you need. I thought of it this way. Imagine you go to a couple's house. Imagine you came to my house about 11 years ago, 11 and a half years ago, when we just had one kid. And when that first kid falls down, for whatever reason, the parents of one child immediately respond and tend to that child, right? It's like, oh my goodness, oh my little baby, are you okay, let's get up here, okay, mommy's got you. Go get the boo-boo bunny, it's okay baby, you're gonna be okay. But something seemingly strange and bizarre happens by the time that same couple has multiple kids. You go to their house, you came to my house now, and the newest and littlest one falls, or maybe it's my son Caleb who tries to jump off of everything. And he smacks his head, and he starts wailing. But mom and dad do nothing. Right, they don't jump up anymore, they don't immediately go and tend to the kid, no one's getting boo-boo bunny, unless the kid wants to get up off the ground and go get boo-boo bunny. Maybe, at best, maybe at best, you'll hear, you're fine, get up, walk it off. Now, of course, if that kid was truly hurt, then they would be, I would be, we would be cruel not to tend to them, but, Parents learn more as they have more kids about what kids really need. Sometimes it's comfort. Sometimes it's encouragement. Sometimes it's strengthening. And the same is true with us and God. His delay, his lack of response, from our perspective, can seem cruel. It can seem like indifference, like he doesn't love us. We fall and he waits. We cry out and he tells us to press on. We draw near, but he seems distant. But this isn't because he doesn't love us. It's because he loves us enough to withhold what we want in order to give us what we need. Jesus knows better than us. Point number two this morning, and these will be significantly briefer, the promise of Jesus. The promise of Jesus in verses 17 through 27. By the time Jesus arrives in Bethany, we're informed that Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. And this reference to four days is not an insignificant detail. The rabbinic teaching of that day included the idea that after a person died, their spirit hovered over their body for three days And if the body was somehow resuscitated, the spirit would return to it. But after four days, death was irreversible. So Jesus returned on this day because he didn't want there to be any doubt, any controversy when he raised Lazarus from the dead. He wanted it to be clear that this was a miracle. This was a sign revealing his identity as the Son of God. So he arrives according to the divine timetable. And friends, this is encouraging to know. After we just looked at Jesus' delay, what we actually find here is Jesus is never late. 
He arrives just on time, right? There's my favorite Lord of the Rings. I can go to, as Gandalf explained to Frodo, a wizard is never late, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. I think Gandalf just said that to cover his tracks, but I believe Jesus is never late. He arrives precisely when he means to. Now, Martha finally hears that Jesus is coming. He's right on schedule for his timetable, but in her mind, to her perspective, he's late. The Savior's coming, but he's come too late. It's the fourth day. There was no hope left, and yet Jesus is coming, and he is coming with something to ignite her hope. He's coming with something to awaken fresh faith. He's coming with a promise. Actually, he's coming with two promises. The first is so incredible that it flies over her head. In verse 23, he says to her, your brother will rise again. Martha's response affirms this reality, but in the distant future, she says to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus is like, well, yeah, but that's not exactly what I was talking about. So Martha, let's, let's go a little deeper here. Let me give you a theological base you need here. Let me give you some revelation. I am the resurrection and the life. And on that truth, let me give you a better promise. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Friends, what hope is found in these words and what they reveal in the midst of sorrow, grief, and death? Jesus doesn't merely teach on the resurrection. He announces that he is the resurrection and he is the life. Therefore, he promises everyone who trusts in him shall never die. Now, again, let's not misunderstand our Lord's teaching. This does not mean that Christians won't die at all. We are presently and painfully aware of the fact that Christians do die. But as R.C. Sproul explains, biological death doesn't disturb the continuity of the living personal existence for God's people in the slightest. This is what Jesus said. Once a person believes in Christ, the life of Christ is poured into the soul of that person and that life is eternal. Everyone who is in Christ has already begun to experience eternal life. We're never going to die. We may go through the transition of physical death, but that death cannot destroy the life that Christ has given us. So in the midst of our deep sorrow for Christian who has died, Christians like Don and Christians like Bruce, yet there is a certain hope that everyone who lives and believes in Jesus shall never die. And this certain hope is why a funeral for a Christian is distinctively and discernibly different from a funeral for a non-Christian. In the midst of the many tears, you will discern the presence of living hope. And this is because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and he has promised that everyone who lives and believes in him shall never die. Jesus has promised to all who believe in him, though you die, yet shall you live. And Martha's response to this, Martha's response to this is a model for us to emulate. Martha believed. She still didn't anticipate Jesus resurrecting Lazarus from the dead. In fact, in just a few minutes, he'll say, take away the stone, and she'll say, Jesus, it stinks in there, let's not do that. She didn't get that he was about to resurrect 
Lazarus, so she's not anticipating that. Nevertheless, without seeing, she believed. She believed in him. In the midst of her mourning, she confessed, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Martha believed, and friend, I cannot let this opportunity pass by. I must ask you the question Jesus asked of Martha, do you believe? Do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Do you believe he is the resurrection and the life? Do you believe that he died for your sins so that in him, so that in him, though you die, yet you shall live? Jesus promises this. Don believed that. Bruce believed that. Do you believe that? Jesus is holding out salvation as a gift to you this morning, and faith is you receiving that gift. And I pray that you do today. This all leads us to point number three then. Point number three is the heart of Jesus. The heart of Jesus in verses 28 through 37. This may surprise you, but I don't think there is a passage in scripture where the heart of Jesus and the emotions of Jesus are more on display than in this one. Sinclair Ferguson said of this passage, these are among the most important words you could read about Jesus Christ. Mary comes to Jesus saying the same thing as her sister. She falls at Jesus' feet and she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But notice Jesus' response to Mary. It's, It's so very different than his reply to Martha. In verse 33 we read, when Jesus saw her weeping, she'd fallen at his feet. She's weeping at his feet. And the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Martha came saying the same thing and he ministered to her with a promise, with truth. But as Mary came to him weeping at his feet and as he took in the grief all around him, we're told Jesus here is deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And this phrase, deeply moved, this phrase, deeply moved, when referencing a human emotion, means something more like profoundly angry. So Jesus here, we're told, is angry. Jesus was indignant about death. Jesus was angry, and as a result, he was greatly troubled. B.B. Warfield writes of this passage, what John tells us in point of fact is that Jesus approached the grave of Lazarus in a state not of uncontrollable grief, but of inexpressible anger. Jesus is angry. Why is he angry? Is he angry at Mary? Is he angry at Martha? for their weeping and their questions? Is he angry at those weeping all around and grieving? No, he's not angry at all them, so why is Jesus angry? The answer is, he's angry at death. All around him, death is wreaking havoc on those he loves, and so Jesus is angry at sin, and he's angry at death. B.B. Warfield again says, inextinguishable fury seizes upon him, it is 
death that is the object of his wrath, and behind death, him who has the power of death, and him who he has come into the world to destroy. Jesus was angry at death and the havoc that it leaves in its wake, and we should be angry at death as well. You wanna know how to think about death? You wanna think about death when death strikes someone you know or you hear about death? One of the feelings you ought to feel is you ought to be angry. You ought to enter into the emotion that our own Lord Jesus felt. You should be angry. We should be angry at Don's death. We should be angry at Bruce's death. I'm angry, and I invite you into my anger. It might be the closest we get to righteous anger. Jesus was angry at death, and we should be too, because death is our enemy. Death is our enemy, and so Jesus is deeply moved. He is angry. Jesus felt fury. Jesus is greatly troubled. But then, on top of that emotional outburst, is immediately followed by another emotional outburst. And I am so comfortable about this because in my times of grieving, I am often hit with all kinds of different emotions and they come at different times. One minute I'm struggling and one minute I'm angry and one minute I'm confused and I'm just glad to see Jesus feels all kinds of different emotions as well. Because in verses 34 and 35 we read, and he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And then we have the shortest verse in all of scripture. Jesus wept. Can you imagine that? The Son of God shedding tears. The Son of God weeping with those who are weeping, observing their grief and being shown where his friend is, lies wrapped in death and Jesus wept holy tears. And what floors me about this is that Jesus knows that in just a minute, he's gonna raise Lazarus from the dead. In just a minute, he's gonna restore Lazarus to his, second, his sisters. I mean, in just a short minute, he's gonna turn all this mourning into dancing. But before he performs that miracle, he enters into the grief of the moment and he mourns with those who mourn the loss of a loved one. Jesus shares the grief of Mary and Martha. He enters into their pain. And his tears did not go unnoticed. Those present said, see how he loved him. Friends, here is revealed to us the heart of our Savior. Yes, he is able to save to the uttermost, but he is also able to feel to the uttermost. Jesus is a lion to his enemies, but a lamb to his friends. He hates with righteous hatred all that afflicts us, but Isaiah 53, 4 reminds us he also bears our griefs and carries our sorrows. So in your grief, Jesus is grieved. In your distress, Jesus is distressed. With Brenda here this morning weeping, Jesus weeps. Jesus models for us here what it means to mourn with those who mourn and weep with those who weep. We begin by identifying with someone in their sorrows and weeping with them. 
the example of Jesus in this passage is instructive. It's instructive and it's liberating because the truth is we don't have to say anything profound. In fact, we don't have to say anything at all. (laughs) I found the less I say, the better. Just being present with tears in our eyes is sufficient. Just being there, identifying, just being there and feeling with them, just being there to mourn and to cry. Before we say anything to someone grieving the loss of a loved one, we must identify with them in their sorrow as best we can. And this is good news because this is something we all can do. We might not know what to say, but we can be a silent companion. We can all listen. We can all feel anger over evil. We can all feel sympathy over suffering, and we can all just be there. That's, the, that's what's helpful about going to a funeral or to a viewing. It's not about what you say or if you, it's just being there. That's the first thing we learn from Jesus about how to mourn with those who mourn. And the second thing is, that if we have a history of relationship with them and at the appropriate time, we can also give them encouragement and exhortation like Jesus did to Martha. Trials test our faith, and so when trials come, we need the promises of God ministered to us. Promises like were read this morning in this service. The afflicted need the promises of God, but notice Jesus ministered to Martha with a promise while he ministered to Mary with his tears. He could discern which was needed and we must also exercise discernment as well. Generally speaking, my advice is be slow to speak. You remember the best things Job's friends did for him was when they sat in silence. And again, the good news is that's something we all can do. Jesus has much to teach us about how to mourn with those who mourn, but let us turn now to The final point we want to look at briefly this morning, the triumph of Jesus. Point number four, the triumph of Jesus in verses 38 through really 46. This story doesn't conclude with tears, but actually concludes with the triumph of Jesus over death. In verse 38, we read that Jesus is now angry again. He's moved in his spirit again. His inner state is one of irrepressible emotion and anger, and so into the face of death, Jesus yells. Into the crypt, he cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And the man who had died came out. Lazarus came out of the grave alive. He came out alive, and yet remarkably, we're not told, we're not told about Lazarus' reaction. I mean, as a kid, isn't that what you're always wondering? Like, what was it like for Lazarus? And we're not even told about Mary and Martha's reaction or any of the aftermath of his raising, except in verses 45 and 46, we just read simply this. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Notice here, the focus is not on the raised man, Lazarus. The focus is still on Jesus. His triumph over death, as well as him who has the power of death, the devil, causes many to believe in him, but it also causes others to conspire against him. In fact, there's no small amount of irony in the fact that 
get this, Jesus' triumph over death in Lazarus' life precipitated his own death. Remember, he went back to Judea where they hated him. And look down with me at verse 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. That was the fruit and effect of this miracle. Jesus risked his own life for Lazarus's. Jesus laid down his own life for Lazarus's. Jesus' death here, we see, was no accident. Jesus was intent on going back. This was, in fact, the purpose for which he came. Jesus came to suffer death in our, light, our place as our substitute for our sin. His death addresses our great enemy and our great fear, which is death. On the cross, the enemy of death is conquered when the Son of God dies in the place of sinners like you and me. Through his death and resurrection, death is defeated. Death no longer has the final say for any Christian. So Lazarus was just a foretaste of what was to come. Lazarus' resurrection was just a picture of what was coming when through Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus would triumph over all death once and for all. And friends, this is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we have a savior who not only feels the effect of death in our lives and weeps with us there, but we also have a savior who was willing to bear God's judgment for our sins so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. Jesus laid his life on the line so that in him, though we die, yet will we live. Friends, death has been swallowed up in the the victory of Jesus Christ. Death has lost its sting, for the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has triumphed over death, friends. That's the point of this story. And in him, so has Don, and so has Bruce, and someday, so will you and I. And on that day, on that final day, on that day, the one who wept, by the tomb of Lazarus will on that day wipe away every tear from our eyes. For death shall be no more on that day, and neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things will have passed away on that day. And Lazarus is a preview of that day. What a day we have to come. What a hope we have in Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, what a friend we have in Jesus. What a savior. There's no one like him <laughs> who can sympathize with us in our weaknesses. Blows my mind that the one that wipes away our tears is the one who has also wept. You know, Jesus, our pain. You share in it. And yet you also entered into pain to free us from pain 
on that day. And so what a savior we have. That you would weaken yourself, humble yourself to such a point that you would take my place and bear my shame and bear my sin and bear my judgment. Jesus, there's no one like you and we need you in our hour of suffering and pain, Lord. We need you to be near to us and to comfort us and when the timing is right, to deliver us. So we entrust ourselves into your wounded hands, for we know that you love us and you will hold us fast. Pray this all in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Let me invite you to stand, please. Our Lord Jesus has gone before us to prepare a place for us and he has also prepared a feast for us. It's his wedding feast. It's a day of celebration and joy that we will share with Jesus. But we're not there yet. It's not that day. It's still this day. And so Jesus was so kind as to establish the Lord's Supper as a sacrament for the church, a preview, like Lazarus is, a preview of the day to come, a preview of the feast we will one day share in when death is no more and pain is no more and suffering is no more. So. This is a rich preview that we're about to take right now. Something to feed our faith and to lift our eyes up above the present circumstances to the circumstances to come. So if you're a Christian, whether you call this church your home or not, uh, you are welcome to join with us at the Lord's table for this is one, this is a meal he has set for us. If you're not a Christian, uh, but you're here with us today, we want you to know we're so glad you're with us. Um, there's nowhere else we